Happy 2018, everyone. We're excited to share an entire new year of stories with you. A quick reminder, the San Diego show is taking a break in January, so the next show will take place in Denver on January 17th at Bumpport Theater. The theme will be Big Shot. Next storyteller. All right, next storyteller. Next storyteller. Our next storyteller. Welcome to the Narrators Podcast. This podcast collects stories that were told at the Narrators, a monthly storytelling event that features people telling true stories based on a theme. Mona de Vestel is a writer who grew up in Brussels and now lives in San Diego. She told this story on December 12th, 2017 at Tiger Tiger Tavern. The theme of the evening was chance. Okay, so a few years ago, I ran into Wendy, an old friend from childhood. She and her family were the first people my mother and I met when we first immigrated from Belgium. I didn't speak a word of English, and she's one of the few people in my life who actually has a memory of my broken English and my French accent when I was 13. I hadn't seen Wendy in many years, and she invited me to come um, and see the house she just purchased with her husband. Wendy was a shaman, and when I asked her what that meant, she said, let's just do a session and you'll see. I was a skeptic. I, I hated anything woo, but somehow I intrinsically trusted Wendy only the, in the way that you can trust someone who has been a witness to your own life for decades. This is my studio, she said, pointing to an airy room overlooking a backyard with a green lawn, a large chicken coop, and a fire pit. I'm glad you agreed to do a session with me. Why am I doing this, I asked myself one last time before closing my eyes on the massage table. Let's go back to your last life, the life right before this one, she said. Are you ready? Visualize memories from this life and keep going backwards until you're in your mother's womb. Surprisingly, it was so effortless. Memories of my life flash before my eyes, as they say, as if I were watching my very own existence in a flip book, and then everything went dark. Where are you? Wendy asked. I'm walking on a beach. Good. Now look at your feet, she said. I looked down on my feet, and I was shocked to see these huge man's feet with gnarly nails and calloused hairy toes. They were definitely not Mona's feet, definitely not my feet. Now look at your hands, Wendy said to me. My hands were equally large and calloused. They clearly belonged to a man who worked with his hands all day. And to make matters even more bizarre, I noticed that my hands were white. I was accustomed to my elegant, feminine, brown, female hands. I'm a man, I said. A white man. Yes, she whispered, the way someone whispers knowingly about a fact that is only being confirmed. Out of nowhere, my body became filled with the most intense, the most atrocious grief I have ever encountered. The emotional pain I felt was so deeply arresting, so all-encompassing, that it knocked me to my knees. It knocked me, the man I was, down to my knees, and I wept. No, I wailed. I could not stop crying. I, Mona, the person on the massage table, was also wailing. What is happening, Wendy asked me, like someone whose view of a movie screen has suddenly been obstructed. My wife and my kids, they're gone. I watched my life unravel in front of my eyes as if I were watching a movie. It was fluid, deeply visceral. I was reliving each moment with total intensity. I had lost a wife a few months earlier, and the grief of her loss had sent me over the edge. 
I saw myself with two little kids alone in a cabin, and suddenly the memories of the details of my life poured back into me all at once. I've done a horrible thing, I said to her. Yes, it seemed that Wendy was waiting for me to tell her the details of what she already knew. My kids, I abandoned them, I said. A little girl and a baby boy, I've left them both. I couldn't take care of them and I left them. Just like that, I remembered the horror of abandoning my two children. This man's two children in a cabin one day and letting them die. I cried on that massage table like I've never cried. Let's go to your deathbed now, Wendy said. Let's go to that last moment before you took your last breath in that life. And I saw myself, now an old man, 86 years old or so, alone and dying in my bed. The grief I felt for the failure of my life was shattering. Breathe through the pain, forgive yourself. It is done now. This life is done and it is gone. I breathed through the pain as I, Mona, the girl on the massage table, felt the tears streaming down my face. The, vivid, the vividness of that experience stayed with me for as long as the vividness of a dream. This is to say that although, although I was convinced that this moment, which Wendy had called a past life regression, had been the single most life-transforming moment in my life, I began to forget its intensity in the days that followed. And by the following month, I just felt like it had been a distant dream from which I felt removed and even a bit embarrassed by, given the massive level of woo associated with it. Years went by, and I felt the over overpowering push of my body whispering to me, this is your last chance. Everywhere I went, every store I visited, every street corner, I noticed children, I noticed babies. My body noticed babies. My ovaries noticed babies. This is your last chance, my body whispered. I was in a stable relationship. I had a kick-ass job as a professor with full benefits. I decided to take a chance. I sat confidently in the luxurious office of the fertility clinic where the words in vitro fertilization were pronounced. We have two viable embryos ready to be transferred into your uterus, the doctor told me. I remember the cockiness I felt that day as I played God with the privilege of my resources. But the, the, dog, uh, the, dog, the doctor warned me, we have to let you know, however, that at your age, 41, you have only about a 5% chance of being able to produce a viable pregnancy. I remember the two little children belonging to the wailing man on the beach. On the second in vitro cycle, I waited for the news to see if I was pregnant when I got a call from my doctor. I have very bad news for you, Mona. I had taken the unidentified call on my phone on a whim, thinking it might be a call from overseas for my family. You have invasive ductal carcinoma. The words rung in my ears like I felt, the words rung in my ears, I felt like I had been punched and the wind had been sucked out of my lungs. Wait, what, carcinoma? That's cancer, right? Yes, you have breast cancer, the doctor said. We just got the results of your biopsy. My biopsy? I had not forgotten, I had forgotten I had gotten a biopsy. Who actually forgets they get a biopsy? I did. 
I was that confident about the course of my life. I was going to get pregnant at 41. I was going to defy the fucking fertility odds. I was going to have a baby. Now I had cancer. My brain could not process the news. I, Mona, had cancer. This was not supposed to be the story of my life. For the next few days, I heard the words ringing in my head over and over again. This is not supposed to be this way. This is not supposed to be this way. Three days later, I got my period. I was not pregnant. I would never be pregnant. Four years ago, I went to a dinner party and I met a single woman who had adopted five children from foster care. Have you ever thought about being a foster parent, she said to me. And just like that, an entire world opened to me. I got my foster license a year ago, and six months later, I got a call. Would you be interested in taking in a little five-year-old girl? I drove to the county office, and overnight, I became a parent. One moment, I was wondering when I should, if I should get a massage, or if I should go out for drinks with friends, or go on a hike with my dogs. And the next, I was driving, driving, my, driving to buy a car seat and putting together bunk beds. Bunk beds. There had been a vision in my mind about a girl and a younger boy. Even though I never thought about him, about that man on the beach, and of his two abandoned children in the cabin, my children, that vision had never left me, two children. That night, I picked her up. I read her a story in the makeshift children room with the bunk beds and the single toy I had bought for when I'd get the call. Baby girl baptized the bunny hoppity hop, and just like that, I became a mom. Soccer practice, PTA, Taekwondo, playgrounds, arts and crafts, baking cookies, cartoons, story time, bath time, every day. The first time she called me mommy. I got the second call about baby boy. Three months later, there is a little four-year-old at the Polinsky Center in need of a family. And just like that, here we were, perfectly matched. The preschool teacher said to me one day as I was making my way out after dropping him off, I can't believe those two, little, those two little ones are not your biological children. They both look just like you. They look like each other. For a few weeks, I lived in a state of bliss, a period of standstill when I slipped into my own fantasy of being their forever mom. Both had suffered horrendous abuse and neglect. Both needed me. I wanted them. The three of us drove throughout the city as we went on, our, on adventures the Sculpture Garden in, ba in Balboa Park, the Fleet Science Center, the IMAX, our favorite playground in our neighborhood, where I knew the names of all the kids, Danny, Manny, Robbie, Andrew. Look at how beautiful I'd hear baby boy's tiny voice coming from the back seat as he pointed to the bleeding San Diego sunset. Mommy, I love you, baby girl would say to me every night before falling asleep. I couldn't help but think about the karmic retribution the man on the beach, his two children, my two children. The primary goal of the county's efforts in child welfare services is to provide a path toward reunification with biological family for the child. I knew that. There is a difference between knowing something in your brain and knowing something in your heart. The call came about baby boy first. He will be leaving to go to live with his aunt very soon, the social worker said, just like that. My heart sank. After that call, I could see him vanishing from my life long before I actually would stop hearing his tiny voice pierce in the darkness as he woke from night terrors. I'm scared of the dark. 
I wait for the call for the, from the social worker about baby girl. We understand you are prepared to adopt her, but we want you to know that there is a possibility she may be placed with an uncle. Chance. Every day, I wait for the phone to ring. Until then, I continue to take a chance. How do you rectify the wrongs of a life on a beach in another person's body? Chance. Thank you. Thank you, Mona. The Narrators is produced by Robert Rutherford, Mary Robertson, Aaron Rollman, and me, Ron Doyle. Our assistant producer is Sydney Crane. Our theme music is by Whalehawk. And our founder and executive producer is Andrew Orvidal. A very special thanks to our amazing sponsors, Illegal Pete's, Sexy Pizza, From the Hip Photo, and Renegade Brewing Company. If you haven't already, please subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And join us at one of our live monthly shows, which take place every second Tuesday of the month at Tiger Tiger Tavern in San Diego, California, and every third Wednesday of the month at Bumport Theater in Denver, Colorado. Both shows start at 8 p.m. and are always free to attend. You can find us on Facebook or Twitter, and for past episodes, photos from our live shows, and a list of our upcoming events and themes, please visit thenarrators.org. Thanks for listening.